0: Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author-in-the-Room conference call. My name is Rick, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star, zero, on your touchstone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, a practicing internist, and senior communications strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead.
1: Thank you, Rick. I appreciate that very much. Uh, hello and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As Rick said, my name is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Um, I actually am not the former correspondent for National Public Radio, although I wish I was. Um, Madge Kaplan, uh, who was working with us previously on these calls, uh, that was her title, and uh and uh, we miss Madge. Um, uh, Madge is a senior uh, uh, communication strategist at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, I am Dr. Chuck Kylo, uh as Rick said, CEO of Greenfield Health a Medical Group in Portland, Oregon, and a fellow of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, author-in-the-room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, in this case what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author, Dr. Chris uh, Callahan, uh, first author on the article Effectiveness of Collaborative Care for Older Adults with Alzheimer's Disease in Primary Care, published in the May 10, 2006 issue of JAMA, uh, is here with us, and um, it's wonderful to have Chris. Chris, welcome.
2: Uh, Thank you very much. I want to uh, thank Dr. Kylo and the um, Institute for Healthcare Improvement for Uh, setting this up today. It's a real pleasure to have a chance to talk about this study with people from across the country. Wonderful.
1: Uh, Chris is a professor at the Indiana University Center for Aging Research and the uh, Regenstrief Institute. Chris is a research scientist at uh, Regenstrief and he was the founding director of the Indiana University Center for Aging Research uh, and uh, has obviously deep experience in uh, the realm of Alzheimer's disease. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus the discussion, as you know, on the application of Dr. Callahan's research uh, into the clinical world, the purpose of author in the room is just that. It's for you to hear directly from the author or authors about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Today, Dr. Callahan and I will help translate what's in this paper and it changes applicable to your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Callahan will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings and I will take about 5 minutes to draw out some of the implications for real world practice settings and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments, which we'll do probably at about 25 minutes after the hour. We do want to stress how important it is for your participation in these calls. Uh, It's a great forum for you to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from, uh, in this case, Dr. Callahan, and to to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps that you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Now, there are approximately 125 phone lines connected to the call today. Generally, there are several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. Uh, The other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming video audio file and downloadable as an MP3 file that you can access via iTunes. Uh, Complete details and instructions for that are available at the program section of IHI.org, which is IHI's website, as you know. When you subscribe to the IHI Author in the Room uh, on iTunes, some previous Author in the Room calls are also available uh, as podcasts, just so you know. So, welcome and let's
2: get started. Dr. Callahan, let's like well, turn it over to you. Thanks, and thanks for that introduction. I'm going to give um, just a little bit of background on the study, and perhaps uh, we'll start off with a reminder that this was a collaboration and a very enjoyable collaboration between Researchers and clinicians in general internal medicine and psychiatry, as well as our informatics program here in the Regenstrief Institute and the Alzheimer's Disease Center. Just as a little bit of context, most older adults with dementia are cared for by generalist physicians, and this is especially true for those in the early phases of the disease. One of the reasons that we were um, interested in this project is because there is increasing emphasis on early diagnosis and treatment with the notion that you might be able to intervene early and therefore affect a better outcome from this illness. The um, second issue here is that uh, in our prior work and certainly throughout the conduct of this study, we were aware of a some therapeutic nihilism or um, perhaps cynicism on the part of patients and um, generalist physicians about whether we really had anything to offer patients with Alzheimer's disease. So several national organizations had published expert guidelines, but these guidelines uh, were complicated in the sense that implementing them in primary care would require substantial practice redesign and therefore some upfront costs. So what we thought we could do was um, to implement these guidelines uh, in a randomized trial uh, to at least provide some initial evidence about whether if you provide these guidelines the way um, uh, the experts have recommended, whether we could expect uh, any particular improvement on the part of the patients and the caregivers. So the basic treatment guidelines, um, for primary care boil down, I, I think essentially to making a specific diagnosis, uh, to providing the patient and family with education and access to community resources. Um, m- most people would also give consideration for, um cholinesterase inhibitors or similar medications. And then, I uh, have a particular focus on managing behavioral symptoms and uh, treating disability that's due to comorbid condition, track patient outcomes, uh, so you could say uh, whether they'd responded to these interventions, and then in general provide support for the caregiver. Uh, many of these are what people would describe as low-tech, high-touch, uh, but still very difficult to implement in a, in a typical primary care practice. So our hypothesis was that the patients provided collaborative care would receive a better quality of care and would have less uh, severe behavioral symptoms. We also uh, hypothesized that the caregivers of patients provided the collaborative care would have, have less caregiver stress. And then we believed that if we could reduce the behavioral symptoms and the caregiver stress, that we could reduce uh, the likelihood that the patient would be placed in a long-term care facility. And, and that was believed to um, derive directly from this attention to the behavioral disturbances because there is some literature suggesting that those behavioral disturbances do drive decision-making about placement in long-term care settings. So this is a randomized controlled clinical trial. The patients were enrolled from two large university-affiliated primary care practices. One of those is a urban um, uh, hospital in uh, Indianapolis. The other is the large VA hospital in the Indianapolis area. We enrolled 153 patients with Alzheimer's disease. They were randomized by physician to receive either augmented usual care or collaborative care. We're going to come back just to mention a little bit about augmented care in a minute. And all patients had to meet diagnostic criteria for Alzheimer's disease, and they also had to be able to identify a caregiver. So this augmented usual care uh, is partially driven by what we believe to be the um, standard of care and also by uh, issues related to human subjects involvement in clinical trials. But usual care in this study was augmented uh, in that we gave the results of a formal diagnostic evaluation in writing to the primary care physicians. So one of the first barriers to appropriate treatment of Alzheimer's disease is an accurate diagnosis. And you can see for the usual care group, we overcame that barrier uh, from the outset. In addition, uh, we gave the usual care patients somewhere around a 40 to 90-minute educational visit with the care manager, and that was attended both by the patient and the caregiver uh, because we felt that uh, if we were going to reveal the diagnosis, that we had a obligation to provide some education around that diagnosis as well. And all of these usual care patients were also referred to the local Alzheimer's Association uh, for um, further questions. And, of course, the usual care physicians could provide any dementia care they um, deemed appropriate. The intervention then was one year of care management, and that was led by a nurse practitioner uh, who worked with the patient's family caregiver and that patient's primary care physician. Um, all of these intervention uh, caregivers were educated on some basics of uh, dealing with Alzheimer's patients that would apply to any Alzheimer's uh, patient, and that included things like basic communication and coping skills, uh, where to get legal and financial advice, some exercise guidelines, and then a more extensive list of community resources. The real intervention, uh, though, was that at each contact, the care manager assessed current problems using a, a behavior problem checklist. And then based on current symptoms, so individualized to that patient's current symptoms, the care manager could activate standard protocols. And these protocols included um, personal care, sleep disturbances, mobility, depression, delusions, repetitive behavior, agitation or aggression, and also the caregiver's own health. So uh, a given patient at a given follow-up point might have needed a protocol for sleep disturbance, depression, and delusions. At another point in time, that same patient might have only activated the protocol for aggression. Now. These protocols emphasize non-pharmacologic management, and uh, it's non-pharmacologic management primarily as delivered by this uh, family caregiver. The nurse care manager had access to a fairly rich set of resources. Uh, there was an interdisciplinary support team that met weekly, and that team included a geriatrician, a geriatric psychiatrist, and a social psychologist that social psychologist was part of the Alzheimer's, local Alzheimer's Association network. They um, reviewed all the new patients and they reviewed problems that they were having with uh, older uh, patients, patients who were, had been enrolled in the study earlier. And then the patient's progress was mo- monitored by a, a web-based longitudinal tracking system. And this is particularly important because to a certain extent, It holds the team's feet to the fire in terms of if the patient and caregiver are not getting better, then we need to try something differently. So it keeps us from really um, getting in a uh, stagnant period where the patient isn't getting better but we're not acting on that problem. Patients were seen bimonthly initially and then is needed for one year. Um, There were uh, some imbalances um, in the randomization uh, in, between the two study groups. So mean age was uh, about 78 years old. There were slightly more women in the um, intervention group um, and slightly more ac- uh, African-Americans in the um, intervention group. Um, otherwise, the groups were balanced in terms of um, their education and their mean many mental status scores. This is primarily a manifestation of a small sample size and uh, the randomization by physician. You can get into that problem. And we did check uh, in the analyses to see if these explained any of the differences. There's also some interesting things to note about the caregiver characteristics. Uh, I really I had been describing the patient characteristics, but... The um, caregivers, only about uh, three-quarters of them actually lived with the patient. Um, Less than half of them were a spouse, and about 20% of them were non-family caregivers. And um, what this also doesn't portray is you had to have a caregiver to enter the study. Um, So we were finding patients who otherwise qualified for the study but could identify no caregiver at all, family or otherwise. So um, these uh, protocols then, um, another thing to point out is that patients didn't have to have a critical amount of behavioral uh, disturbance to be enrolled in the study because one of the goals was to prevent behavioral disturbances, and we also know from other literature that even patients with mild Alzheimer's disease, the majority will develop behavioral disturbances over the course of a year or two. So. The care manager had uh, almost 15 contacts with the um, patients over a year. Uh, Her intervention lasted a year. About half of those 15 contacts were face-to-face, and the other half were over the phone. And on average, there were um, three or four protocols um, uh, activated per patient, with the most common ones actually being issues around the caregiver's health Uh, and then things like depression and repetitive behavior. But delusions was the least common behavioral disturbance, but it occurred in 31% of the patients. So in terms of pharmacologic management, I've stressed that we started with non-pharmacologic management, but when that proved to be um, not completely effective, then we did include pharmacologic management. There's one exception, and I'm going to digress here for just a minute. All of the patients, uh, regardless of uh, their behavioral disturbances, were offered cholinesterase inhibitors at the start of the study. So in the intervention group, about 80% of them were treated with cholinesterase inhibitors, and it's important to note that 55% of the augmented usual care patients were treated. So there is a very um, large prevalence of uh, use of um, cholinesterase inhibitors, even in our control group. Then what we find is um, significantly more people in the intervention being treated with antidepressants. But one of the things that we found um, gratifying was that the intervention did not increase the use of um, antipsychotics or sedative hypnotics. The main outcome um, of this study, the um, primary outcome, was a change in NPI scores, the neuropsychiatric inventory over time. Um, This is not a inventory that would be commonly used by uh, us in a clinical uh, setting, at least by our group in a clinical setting, but this is an instrument that was developed by the collaborative um, Alzheimer's Disease Center study group and we made a particular effort to use the diagnostic criteria and the outcome instruments developed by that consortium so that we would be able to compare our patients and our results to this larger um, body of literature emanating from the Alzheimer's Disease Center, particularly those studies that have focused on pharmacologic therapy. So the NPI has a couple of uh, different forms. There are uh, it can measure anywhere from 12 to um, 14 different behavioral disturbances, and it has a component that also measures the caregiver stress. In essence, it asks the patient how troublesome uh, the behavioral disturbance is to them. And what we found was over the course of the study and um, by 12 months, significant improvements in behavioral disturbances among the intervention patients and that was accompanied by a reduction in caregiver uh, stress. Uh, we did not find any difference between the groups in cognition uh, or in ADLs. I will point out to those of you who are used to um, uh, clinically we often use the uh, basic activities of daily living. In this study again we use the Alzheimer's Disease Center um, ADL scale, uh, which is much broader. It has a little bit more focus on cognitive activities, uh, things like reading the newspaper or participating in hobbies. Um, we found no difference in the rate of nursing home use in, or in the rate of death. We did find that um, caregivers were more satisfied with their care in the intervention group. Um, Just uh, finish up here then, a couple of uh, limitations are that this control group received substantial treatment, and that treatment came both per protocol, because the intervention mandated that that intervention would take place, and because the usual care physicians were um, free to uh, treat the patients how they saw fit, and that I think is reflected in this uh, rate of use of uh, cholinesterase inhibitors. The sample size is um, small. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that which we may get into, but it may be too small to detect important differences in um, nursing home use. Uh, the follow-up may not be long enough uh, as well. Another limitation, uh, which is perhaps obvious but I think shouldn't go unstated, is this is a very intensive intervention and I have perhaps underrepresented the intensity of the program to diagnose the patients because the study really starts with the diagnosis, and um, this intervention was actually coupled with a screening program uh, to um, recognize and diagnose patients. So what we are concluding is that, um, yes, indeed, um, primary care physicians have something to offer, Alzheimer's disease patients and their caregivers uh, and that applied in this manner, uh, if you were able to apply the guidelines that are currently recommended, uh, we can expect to see a reduction in neuropsychiatric symptoms, uh, we can expect a reduction in caregiver distress, and this does not require a great increase in the use of antipsychotic medications uh, or sedatives. Um, that's the glass half full perspective the glass half empty perspective is that uh, an intervention such as this requires um, important practice redesign uh, and it's clear we also need new treatments um, in order to improve outcomes for Alzheimer's disease and I'll stop there dr. Kylo Thank you very much, Dr. Catalan.
1: That was a very uh, wonderful summary of the article. The, the article really is a very detailed study on a complex topic that includes, obviously, not just the patient, but in this case the caregiver also, and uh, I think not enough interventions in this area have really looked at the caregiver and the caregiver stress. You've done a wonderful job in that regard. Our job now is to actually turn from the research and Dr. Callahan's recommendations to think about the changes in clinical practice that this article would lead us to. And we do want to spend some time talking about that. In fact, that is the purpose of the call. Um, some of, the, I think, the unique challenges of this topic, as we think about uh, it from a, an improvement perspective, uh, is that when we're, when we're talking about improvement, uh, we generally use something which we call the model for improvement, and the model impro- for improvement has several components. Um, the first component um, it talks about what it is that we're trying to accomplish, what are our aims. Uh, and as a part of the aim, we really have to understand what it is that we're measuring and understand how to move ourselves towards the aims. In this case, uh, my aim in my own clinical practice has always been to improve the care of patients with Alzheimer's disease, but, you know, I've never quite understood quite how to go about doing that other than, uh, you know, the cholinesterase uh, inhibitors, and even if I could get at that, I was never quite sure as to how to go about measuring that improvement, so those are some I think critical issues that we we'll want to talk about on the call today. how do we in clinical practice get at some of the measurement issues around quality of care for patients with Alzheimer's disease, measures that are applicable in the primary care practice, and then Dr. Callahan's article includes an abundance of testable changes, things that we can try in the primary care practice and or in the more complex uh, possible geriatrics uh, practice to help lead us to that improvement. So without much more, uh, I'd like to move into some discussion, and then we'll open up the uh, the calls for um, some of the particip- participants to call in. Dr. Kalan, to start off with, uh, from your perspective and from the perspective of the primary care art- uh, office, what would you say is the most important take-home uh, lesson
2: from the article? One of the things I think that was troubling um, to me both as a clinician treating patients with uh, dementia, and I have worked in... Obviously the primary care environment and the specialty, um, geriatric environment is that, um, we have enough cynicism, uh, that we're frequently told by, um, primary care physicians that the, um, risks and the harms of diagnosing, um, Alzheimer's disease outweigh the benefits. And that's a fairly strong, um, cynicism or, um, uh, perhaps a uh, portrait of um, what we should be um, doing clinically so that we're frequently told, I have nothing to offer this patient. Why would I break their spirit, uh, diminish their hope, label them, perhaps make them ineligible for things like long-term care insurance, by hanging a label on them that I have nothing to offer? Now, I think uh, in terms of changing um, practice, one of the first things that we might change um, is the notion that there's no reason to look for this diagnosis and there's no reason to make it and there's no uh, reason to talk to patients about it. Um, the only way to make this um, diagnosis across uh, your population is um, either by screening for it or by asking about it in a way that communicates to patients and family that you have something to offer. And those, I think, are pretty uh, dramatic changes in um, the typical primary care practice.
1: Mm. Okay, and I think we'll probably get into some of those specifics here as we open the lines uh, to the participants, which I would like to do at this point, Rick.
0: Okay. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. And if you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touchstone phone. This will place you into queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your question. So, again, that's zero, 01 on your touchstone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press 0, then the 2 key. There will be one moment for questions. Our first question comes from Henry Ford Hospital.
1: Please go ahead. Uh, uh, please uh, introduce yourself, too. Just let us know who you are, and uh, that would be helpful.
3: Great. Um, My name is Rana Schatz. I'm a behavioral neurologist at Henry Ford Hospital. So I'm not primary care, but this is a a problem that we've been addressing here in the state of Michigan as a state in collaboration with primary care physicians. So your project is um, just so wonderful to read about because it's something we've been trying to look at. And definitely what you said about overcoming barriers of cynicism is part of the issue. And I think one of the Subtopics here is that issue of diagnosis, and you said you overcame a barrier right away by providing a diagnosis. And my sense is that many mental state is too unwieldy; it's not used properly. And do you see a role for some of the new, let's say, web-based tools that are available that are sort of more automatic? And um, had you thought about that?
2: This is a um, thanks for your your question. It's really, I think, a difficult topic uh, right now because. Prior to this study, of course, the, um, the U.S. Preventive Health Services Task Force had said we had insufficient evidence to either, you know, suggest that we screen or suggest right. that we not screen because of this problem with uh, harms, uh, really undisclosed um, harms of screening. Um, the screening part of this study uh, was published about a year ago. Uh, and it provides a description of some of the troubles we ran into um, with screening. We did not use the MMSE, but we used an instrument very similar to this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the biggest problem is that um, if you used something like the MMSE or a brief cognitive screen mm-hmm. and stopped there and labeled those people who scored poorly as demented, you would be labeling about half of those people as demented who were not. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these um, instruments are relatively sensitive. Depending on the cutoff you take, you can make them very sensitive. But really all they identify for you is a person who needs further investigation. Exactly. So we have this problem with sort of pushing our generalist physicians to look And then at the same time saying, you know, we want to encourage you that there are brief screeners out there that could separate out patients who clearly do not have cognitive impairment from those who might have it. And I think we have to stress who might have it. Mm -hmm. Among those people who might have it, they need a more detailed evaluation, which does not necessarily have to happen in the primary care physician's office but could. As you mentioned, there are some web-based tools now. Um, some of them, uh, you know, are um, getting to the point where their sensitivity and specificity and predictive value are beginning to be characterized. I don't have one of those that I could recommend yet because a lot of that um, research has not made it to the literature yet, especially in comparison with alternative methods. But it's a very uh, intriguing area for the future.
3: Thank you.
1: So it is, you know, the the whole issue of diagnosis really still remains a challenge, particularly at the primary care uh, level. Um, And um, despite the fact that some of these web-based tools are uh, in development, Chris, in the article you did use the NPI And for those on the call who aren't that familiar with the NPI, could you just give us a quick overview and talk about the utility or the lack of utility of using that in a clinical
2: setting? Well, as a clinician, I cannot imagine using the um, NPI um, because um, it has about 12 to um, 14 modules, depending on which ones you use, and it also has the um, caregiver um, um, portion of it as well. So I think there are shorter ones. I'm only – what my problem with that statement is, though, um, the MPI is, is one of the better studied. Um, and so, uh, you know, you could say, well, maybe that's what it takes in terms of, um, you know, being able to measure change over time. I think you have the option, certainly, of using the MPI. There's nothing technical about it. It's a series of questions that you are posing to the caregiver, about um, behavioral disturbances that the patient may or may not have. As simple as saying, you know, has the patient had any uh, hallucinations, yes and no, um, and how distressful was those for you, and then adding those up. What you need though um, is a connection between the identification of a specific behavioral disturbance and an action plan, and that's really what this care manager had. So. The other end of the spectrum here is um, simply asking, you know, a very open-ended question to the caregiver of have there been any distressing symptoms or behavioral problems with the patient since I last saw you, because it's an invitation now that you're interested and you have something to offer. The other um, instrument that's probably um, uh, as commonly used as the MPI, is the modified behavior problem checklist, and you'll see that used in the literature as well.
0: Wonderful. Certainly an area of, uh, of further investigation. Uh, Rick, let's go to the next call. The next question comes from Center Health Medical Center. Your line is now open.
4: Uh,
0: Center Health, we can't hear you. Rick, do you want to go to the next call? Absolutely. The next question comes from Baylor College of Medicine. Your line is now open.
5: Um, yes, Dr. Callahan. Um, this is Nancy Wilson. I'm part of a team here at Baylor, um, and I wanted to focus um, my question around the intervention itself. My understanding is that perhaps this intervention increased the frequency of visits to the primary care setting. If I um, and um, But that some of the contact uh, and the intervention was done by telephone. I'm wondering if you could address um, this notion about um, how critical it was that the um, patients see a care manager in the primary care clinic office, and, um, uh, and and also how the role of the telephone in doing the intervention.
2: Okay, thank you, Nancy. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll point out that I did my internal medicine residency at Baylor.
5: <laughs> and we're proud of it.
2: I don't think I've met uh, Nancy before, but the, um, uh, this is a, an interesting thing to sort out because what we reported in the patient are, or in the paper are the number of care manager contacts um, so the care manager herself—it was a woman—in in both cases had, on average, 14 or 15 contacts um, with the patient. Half of those being face to face, and um, half of them being by phone. The issue about whether we increased the, we are changed the number of visits to the primary care physician is impossible to sort out with self-reports because the patients don't separate the notion of seeing their primary care physician from the notion of seeing the nurse practitioner or the nurse or um, the phlebotomy uh, tech, for that matter. It's it's hard to get them to separate and self-report. What we're working on right now with the folks at Street is to um, get the actual number of, of um, contacts with the primary care physicians, which we can only get from billing data, um, and we have a way of um, validating those. So I don't know yet if we increase the frequency of visits with the primary care doc. Typically we do a small amount, um, but much less than you might think. In terms of the, the face-to-face versus telephone, I think this is very similar to any other relationship, and that is that the phone might suffice once the uh, relationship has been developed face-to-face. So these nurse practitioners, I think, were extraordinary in terms of developing relationships with the patient and a relationship with the primary care doc, and the variation in personalities is as great among the docs as it is among the patients, and the um, way that they would like to deal with the care manager varies across patients and um, primary care physicians, and the nurse practitioner had to develop credibility with both. So one way to damage credibility is for the nurse practitioner to suggest she's only interested in dementia, and any other problem you might have, you know, is not her job. Uh, so that relationship building, I think, initially requires face-to-face, and there was always at least one time when the care manager, the primary care doctor, the patient, and the caregiver are in the same place at the same time. You know, to sort of really give a visual impression that uh, this is all uh, one team here and we work together.
5: Um, that's very helpful and I'm also wondering if you know anything about to what extent the intervention patients may have made more contact with the Alzheimer's Association as a result of your intervention.
2: Uh, interesting question. I don't know that, uh, but I suspect we can find that out. Um, one of the things that isn't noted uh, just in terms of space is that the Alzheimer's Association also helped us um, get identification bands for all the intervention patients, and they were instrumental, and we actually um, just took off the shelf some of their educational materials so I'll just point out that they're a wonderful resource in um, most communities for uh, some of these printed materials that uh, a doc may not have in their office or as someone who, who might be able to navigate the other community resources. Very good conversation. Nancy, very,
1: uh, thank you very much for your, uh, your question and comments. are very helpful. Uh, let's move on to the next question, Rick.
0: The next question comes from Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Please go ahead.
4: Hi, this is Marilyn Secondy calling from Northwestern Memorial in Chicago. Um, One thing that isn't talked about too much in the article is this major variable um, in the intervention group, which was the APN. And it seems like You know, recently there's been a lot of evidence about um, having collaborative practices with physicians and APNs, especially for the treatment of patients with chronic conditions, including diabetes and and now with Alzheimer's disease. And I'm wondering if you um, have gotten or have, if the APNs have um, described or written up you know, what it was about their care and the protocols that they were using that they think might have um, resulted in, in some of these changes. I know that the really uh, significant changes were with the, the NPI and then also with the uh, caregivers, but, you know, I, I am wondering if if, um, if the sample had been bigger or if maybe the time period had um, gone on for longer, if you might have ended up seeing some Uh, changes in maybe cognition or nursing home placement. And um, so I'm just wondering if if you've gotten more feedback from the APNs, or if they've written up uh, or uh, plan to write up what what they did and how they thought it affected uh, your outcomes here.
2: There are um, two papers that if you uh, do a search on Ostrom, Mary Ostrom is one of the co-authors uh, on the paper in JAMA, but she's the first author on two papers that describe um, the caregiver protocols. Mm. Uh, and there's a paper written from the perspective of the um, advanced practice nurses uh, about their oh. Uh, you know, just their interaction with the primary care physician and um, operationalizing these behavioral protocols.
4: Good.
2: The um, advanced practice nurses are uh, basically the um, key, uh, the the cornerstone of this intervention. Yeah. And when let me tell you, when this intervention ends and you withdraw them, <laughs> um, there is a lot of uh, pain mm-hmm. on the part of the primary care doc and the family. When um, we did focus groups uh, with the um, intervention folks after the study was over, uh, if you just sort of look at the content of the comments, they very clearly revolve around the relationship with the advanced practice nurse and this ombudsman role
0: mm-hmm.
2: that uh is very difficult to capture. I can't measure that um you know how they're they're helping but in essence they're acting as a um guide through this very complicated healthcare care system and they're not providing that guidance only for the intervention patient. They're, you know, suggesting to the caregiver, gee, you seem depressed, maybe you should right. talk to your doctor about it. So it's a very big part of the intervention and, and sometimes difficult to um, capture. Mm-hmm. There's there's a couple of issues with the notion of um, changes in cognition. Uh, the we have to remember that uh, there's a large uh, percentage of the usual care group that was also treated with cholinesterase inhibitors, which would um, also diminish uh, the capacity to show a difference in measures right. like cognition. Right. Um, and um, it is, of course, possible that the um, sample size is, is simply too small to capture clinically important differences. So. Uh, these are, um, I think, to do a study much uh, bigger than this uh, requires an order of magnitude of um, more resources and to be multi-site. Mm-hmm. I think what we've sort of uh, tried to highlight is um, at least we have, uh, you know, shown some evidence that what we have on the shelf can do something. Well, Marilyn,
1: thank you very much for uh, the comment and and, uh, that conversation. Really, is a critical part. In this case, the uh, advanced uh, practice nurse of the system of care, and and specifically, who in the practice does what work. Uh, Dr. Callahan and I uh, hypothesized earlier when we were chatting that it may have been the case that the uh, advanced practice nurse, in fact, was the intervention. Uh, it, it, that personal contact is really what drives a lot of the positive findings. Not to certainly negate the protocols and other things that were being used, but it is critical for all the for all of us, whether we're in a geriatrics practice, primary care, or in some other setting really think about the specifics of the work, what is the work, and then who's best qualified to do that work. Uh, certainly in the primary care setting, we have far too long dependent on the primary care doc to do all that, which is un- an untenable situation. And so having other um, uh, very competent trained professionals like a, an advanced practice nurse or a nurse practitioner or uh, uh uh, or something along those lines to do this sort of thing really is, uh, I think, right in line with where we'd like people to be thinking in terms of the system design to deliver high-quality chronic care, in this case, care to patients with Alzheimer's disease. So wonderful question, and I really appreciate you bringing up that point. Rick, the next
0: topic. Next question comes from Western Reserve. Your line is now open.
5: Hi, um, my name is Judy Bartell from Hospice of the Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio, and some of the questions I had were already answered, but one question I had was, was any part of the protocol or guidelines that the advanced practice nurses were following um, having anything to do with earlier discussion of -of end-of-life decisions or end-of-life issues? And then the second question was, in terms of the training for those, what the care managers or advanced practice nurses did they go through any training to be qualified to do this in a in separation from just being an advanced practice nurse?
2: Okay, thanks, um, Judy. The uh, the guidelines, um, the the early education part, this uh, uh, package of intervention that. Everyone in the intervention group got sort of divorced from their, whether they had behavioral disturbances or not, did include a discussion of advanced directives, Um, and it's a uh, relatively typical advanced directives discussion, which I think would fall short of some people's notion of uh, more specific discussion of -of end-of-life care, and the... um, uh, the part of this is a difficult dance between when this advanced practice nurse was crossing over into the purview of this patient-physician uh, relationship. And so uh, the sort of um, uh, catch-all here is an encouragement to discuss these issues with the primary care physician and an alert that the primary care physician is willing to um, discuss uh, end of life issues. There's also in some of the materials that, uh, are produced by the Alzheimer's Association, for example, um, discussion about the availability of further materials on advanced directives or end of life care. Um, the, um, uh, the notion of, uh, you know, the training of the advanced practice nurse, the, the main training came in the use of the uh, monitoring instruments. So the, the nurse practitioners were trained in the use of the memory and behavior problem checklist um, and in the PHQ-9, uh, which, which was our um, measure of depressive symptoms in the um, caregiver. And then they were trained in each of the protocols for each of the behavioral um, disturbances. And that training came from Dr. Ostrom, the um, social psychologist who um, developed the behavioral protocols. But I would say that there's a, a fair amount of low-grade consistent training, um, which was coming from these weekly... Meetings uh, with the geriatrician, with the geriatric psychiatrist. So just as an example, um, if uh, each time the nurse practitioner brought up a particular problem, the geriatric psychiatrist said, try this, well, it was very clear that they would begin to try those things before uh, they brought it. So they'd say, you know, well, I already tried uh, changing the dose or, um, you know, changing the, uh, bedtime routine, uh, those kinds of things. So there's upfront training, but they had access to this, uh, this team and, uh, and also the primary care physician.
5: That makes sense. Thanks.
2: Wonderful.
1: Thank you for the question. Uh, and Dr. Callahan mentioned uh, Dr. Mary Ostrom, and uh, the fact you might want to search for her other articles. Her last name is spelled A-U-S-T-R-O-M, if you don't happen to have the article in front of you. Rick, the next question.
0: Okay, it looks like the next question comes from University of Nebraska Metal- Medical Center. Your line is now open. Oops, I'm sorry. It looks like they dropped off. Um Looks like there's no further question. Well, uh Dr. Kelly and we you talked about before that screening
1: in a way, screening or asking in a way that uh, implies that we have something to offer uh is really uh, sort of critical in that that di- early diagnostic step. And uh, maybe you could um, talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, that that second piece, obviously, we're screening all elderly folks. Uh, then that that is a part of the way we do our business. But this issue of asking in a way that implies we have something to offer really is a specific doctor-patient communication device. Any thoughts or insights in that regard?
2: I think a couple, and and some of this we're um, drawing from the depression literature, which in, in some ways is maybe a decade or so farther along than the dementia in primary care literature, but. The um, I think the biggest component of this, uh, even if you aren't convinced enough to pull out a formal screener, um, that you say uh, to your patients that um, many uh, patients as they age um, begin to have some trouble um, with memory, Um, and I'm wondering if you've had any such uh, trouble. The notion of, um, oh, sure, everyone forgets my glasses, or um, I can't find the car keys, I can't remember people's names, um, for some of these patients, you're going to be reassuring them that uh, they don't have any evidence of um, cognitive impairment. Um, for others, by, ans- by asking the question, um, you are implying that you're interested and that you have something to offer. I think um, what happens often in primary care is that the primary care physician is very aware of the deficit or perhaps even uh, the caregiver or the spouse has brought it to the attention of the um, primary care physician and then I think you have a, a, a particularly important opportunity um, to present the case uh, in terms of the merits of making a formal diagnosis. Uh, perhaps um, part of that is by um, looking for other causes of cognitive impairment that might be more easily reversed, um, as well as helping this person understand um, what the future holds. Um, yeah
1: uh wonderful i let me let me just uh bring this down to a real life example uh, cuz i think it is of pertinence and certainly it's it's a little bit different if somebody brings up the question to you i think my memory is failing a little bit uh, you know what should we do about that i saw a 67 year old gentleman this morning who happened to have a typical chest pain and he was in for his chest pain and we discussed a couple of other things that were going on with him but in in the course of the conversation he said you know another thing that's really bothering me sometimes i'm driving around and I know that I should recognize it, uh uh and be able to name uh, a place that I am or a building that I see but I can't. I'm i uh, and that, that's really bothering me. Uh and you wanted to talk about that which I'm willing to do and I told him to go ahead and schedule an appointment for you know at his convenience down the road and we can do that. So how should I manage that visit? What should I my my traditional uh, approach would be to do a mini mental status exam which I now understand is is a not a particularly Uh, specific uh, or sensitive uh, test to do. Uh, Give me some guidance
2: uh, in the primary care practice for how I should proceed. I I have a couple of suggestions. One is having the spouse, a child who knows this uh, person, attend the visit. Uh, One of the best ways to document a change from a prior level of functioning is either from the patient but also from this family caregiver if you think about it in terms of improving the positive predictive value of this MMSE, with the history that you just gave and the corroborating history of the wife, perhaps giving a couple of other examples, um, the mini mental status could be used to assess severity perhaps but nothing that the mini mental status uh, says is going to change your index of suspicion that this person uh, has early cognitive impairment or, or, or simply cognitive impairment. Still important to do because you um, may find, for example, that on this 30-point scale, um, this person scores a 10 and just has happened to um, uh, compensate for that. Also, um, perhaps this difficulty is coming from one of his cardiovascular medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, perhaps this is a manifestation of his um, beta blocker or maybe a pain medicine. And so um, by understanding the pattern and the tone and timber of this potential cognitive loss, it's going to give you some clues into potential uh, reversible causes. Now, if you had the um, story from the caregiver that this person had a fall in cognitive functioning that was severe enough now to interfere with their social functioning. And you also have the um, corroboration of the patient that this indeed has happened. You've come about as far as you can come in an office setting and in many persons' perspective far enough to making a diagnosis of dementia. Uh, so this is a um, uh, simply a... Uh, fall in cognitive function severe enough to interfere with social functioning. And you've got that from the patient and from the um, caregiver. I'm going to assess the magnitude with the mini-mental status, discuss a reversible workup, and um, discuss, uh, you know, possible treatment options. Where we have, I think, um, more difficulty keeping this within the primary care realm is perhaps what you find is, well, it could be the um, uh, metoprolol, uh, but he also seems to be depressed that he can't golf anymore because of his uh, chest pain, um, and uh, he's also um, hyperthyroid, and uh, those are all common things. They may or may not have anything to do with his cognition, and in that setting, um, you have access to a formal neuropsychiatric evaluation, and these typically take an hour or two hours and can really set for you, um, you know, where there's executive dysfunction, where there's memory loss, the the role of uh, mood and emotion, and perhaps even the um, uh, role of medications. So sometimes you're going to see this patient in your um, office, and the answer is going to be obvious. Still requires a explicit diagnosis, and still requires a reversible workup. In other cases, it's going to be obvious there is no cognitive impairment uh, because this person has no complaints, their caregivers notice no problems, and your screening instrument is negative. And then we've got this chunk in the middle uh, that requires a little more work.
1: Well, that is wonderful guidance. I
2: deeply appreciate
1: it. It has changed the way I think about the condition and certainly the way I think about our system of care of these patients in our, in our office practice. Well, we are at the end of the hour. It's been a very engaging hour. I wish we had more time to, to go on. I'd like to uh, really thank you, Dr. Callahan, both for your research and for the call today. Uh, both are just wonderful. I'll give you a chance in just a second to have any, any brief closing comments that you may have. As the participants know, uh, Author in the Room is a monthly series of calls that take place on the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Our next discussion, uh, takes place Wednesday, July 19th from 2 to 3 o'clock Eastern Time. The, uh, author will be Dr. Victor Vogel, uh, and the, uh, the, uh, article is Effects of Tamoxifen versus R- Roloxifen on the Risk of Developing Invasive Breast Cancer and Other Disease Outcomes. And that was published online, uh, at JAMA on June 5th of this year. Well, uh, thanks to everybody for your participation. Look for further details on the IHI and JAMA websites, uh, www.ihi.org and jemma.ama-assn.org. Author in the room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Associ- Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Dr. Callahan, any uh, final Uh, thoughts?
2: I I just want to uh, say again thank you for um, having me on and thanks for the nice questions. Thank you very much. We appreciate
1: your attendance and we appreciate uh, uh, everybody who participated. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much.